A variety of local governments and nonprofits recently received workforce training federal grants. The Economic Development Administration, part of the Commerce Department, awarded the grants under a program called the Good Jobs Challenge. The goal is to create job opportunities for 50,000 people. Here with how the program works, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy, Michelle Chang. Ms. Chang, good to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So this was a challenge grant program, but these were pretty large awards. Tell us, first of all, the overall goals of the program and how it relates to some recent legislation. Well, the Good Jobs Challenge is all about making once-in-a-generation investments aimed at creating high-quality workforce systems to really transform America's communities. It was funded by the American Rescue Plan, which the Commerce Department developed, a competitive grant process to allocate $500 million to innovative workforce development programs. So we had $500 million to give away to communities across our country to really build these workforce systems that will train and place workers into good-quality jobs. And it looks like they all went to places that are nonprofits or local governments and even some educational institutions. Is that a good way to describe who got the money? Yes, that's correct. So we at the Economic Development Administration have authority to provide grants to basically any type of organization except for-profit companies or individuals. So that's why you see the type of organizations that we did give grants to. So you saw everything from economic development organizations to higher ed educations, labor unions, as well as local and state governments as well. So those are the type of organizations that did get our grants. And what was the criteria for giving grants? Some of them range up to 20, 25 million. Some of them are less than 2 million. So we did put out a notice of funding opportunity, which does lay out the different criteria that we evaluated applications against. And it ranged from a number of things from organizational capacity and experience doing this type of work. But one of the key things we really were looking for was employer engagement. We really were focused on programs that would really place and train workers into existing jobs and to have employers make commitments to doing that. So that was one of the key things we were looking at was employer engagement and employer commitment to place workers into good quality jobs. We looked at other things. Another thing that we were really stressed was equity. We really wanted this project to focus on underserved populations and communities and to help those folks be able to get the training that they need to be able to land these good quality jobs. And when you say employer engagement, how does that translate into reality? Say, I'm just picking one at random here, the Office of Workforce Strategy in Connecticut, and the industry served as manufacturing, healthcare, information technology, biomedical, which makes sense when you think of what might be in Connecticut. But it implies that there is some connection between the Office of Workforce Strategy and what employers connected to that office actually need for employees. What we're looking for is employer engagement every step of the way and would go even a step further than that. We're really looking for employer leadership. And this is one of the key things we really focused as, as the Department of Commerce. We fundamentally believe that it was important to have employer leadership every step of the way. So what that looks like is these projects start with the employer. Employer comes to an office like the one you mentioned and says, we are currently struggling to find skilled talent to fill these open vacancies that we have. And let's work together as a coalition within our community, including local education, community-based organizations, finding a training partner to be able to create a training program 
to fill those skilled needs. And the employer will work hand in hand with that organization as well as a training provider to develop a training program that will ultimately help workers get the skills that will help them land those open quality jobs. So the training is conducted ultimately by the employers themselves or by these organizations receiving the grants? It may not be either, actually. It could be these coalitions that we're providing grants to include up to 50, 100 different organizations. We have some grantees who are including over 50 to 60 employers in their region. So this is really a partnership in a community. So usually the training's actually executed by an educational institution. So it could be a community college. It could be a four-year university. It could be other types of training providers as well. Got it. But the ultimate use of the dollars is training for specific openings that industry has said it needs in these locales. That's correct. Not only the training, but also the building of the system to be able to do this. So and when we talk about system, it really is that coalition that I talked about, these different organizations within a community that can come together and understand each of the unique roles that they play to be able to help train workers, support them throughout the training. So one of the key things that we focused on with this program was also providing wraparound services for workers as they're going through training. So we know that particularly folks from underserved populations may have barriers to be able to successfully complete this training. So things like childcare, transportation, language support, access to technology. These are all things that we are also funding to help support those workers make the transition not only to actually do the training, but also makes that transition from training to employment. We're speaking with Michelle Chang. She's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Commerce Department. And what kind of follow-up and monitoring will you do to make sure that the companies got the people they needed and that the people were equipped to do the jobs that the employers ultimately require? So we are going to be working very closely with these 32 grantees that we provide grants to, to make sure that they, number one, have the support that they need, but also to monitor their progress and success. So they've all outlined different metrics that they believe that they'll be able to hit throughout the process. We're going to be working hand in hand with each of them. We also have developed a community of practice and provided a grant to an organization called Jobs for the Future, who will help build a community amongst these 32 grantees help them share best practices and do knowledge sharing too, because we know even though they're all in different regions and working in somewhat different industries, there's a lot of learning that can be done across the grantees as well. And just tell me more about this equity piece, because when you go from place to place throughout the country, you see towns that are impoverished in all of the states. And some places, the impoverished people might be black. Sometimes they're white. Sometimes they're Hispanic. It just depends on the locale. What they have in common is that they are underemployed or unemployed. And so how does the equity apply across these different areas given that populations vary from place to place. I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes. So what we really stress, like I mentioned, for this program is equity. And that, in our mind, how we define equity was underserved populations or communities. So as you mentioned, it could be communities of color. It could be communities that have experienced high levels of distress over time. What we're really looking for is a comprehensive, holistic approach to supporting those communities. And it can look different in every community. For example, we have projects that are going to help folks like working parents, communities of color, veterans, formerly incarcerated individuals, those in recovery, individuals with disabilities. 
all of these folks have different challenges they may face. And so what we looked for in the projects was a holistic approach to supporting those individuals as they're going through their process. And so what that looks like is really understanding the unique needs of those individuals and partnering with community-based organizations to provide that support. So for some folks, it could be language support. For other people, it could be making sure that they have transportation. For example, if someone lives in a rural community but is trying to do training or looking for a job that's in an urban area, How do we make sure that they have the transportation to be able to get that training and then ultimately be able to do the job that they're placed in? And you mentioned that there were $500 million under this program from the American Recovery Act. How much have you awarded and will there be another round for the rest of the money? So we have awarded all of the $500 million on August 3rd. We announced all the awardees. So we announced all $500 million have been awarded at this time. This is all the money that we've been allocated by Congress for this specific program. And so that is what is being awarded at this time. All right. So $500 million divided by 50,000 jobs. That's a pretty good investment on the part of the federal government, isn't it? Per job. It is quite a bit of money per job, but we fundamentally believe that is what's needed, not only to help support particular folks like we talked about from underserved communities so that they have that full support to be able to make that transition from training to employment. But also what we need to think about is that we're investing in these workforce systems in 32 different communities. And so our hope is that these 32 systems will be able to continue to fund these types of programs, run these type of programs so that in the future, if there's different type of jobs or different industries that have a need in their community, they already have that system established and developed to be able to meet those needs. Michelle Chang is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Commerce Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether 
you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that, that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is 
I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.